You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You may be seated for now. Uh, my name is James Fields. I serve here as lead pastor at Soldier Carlisle. Uh, it's indeed a great honor and privilege to be here with you this morning. Happy New Year uh, to everyone seated here. And uh, we are thankful for what the Lord is doing. Uh, we have a treat for us this morning. We're going to conclude our uh, series that we've been going through, the book of Ephesians called Mosaic. Um, but to conclude it, we have a special guest speaker, which I'm really excited for us to hear from this morning, is Mr. B.J. Wright, our own. Uh, we are thankful to God for B.J. and his family uh, being here with us, and uh, we are excited to learn from him this morning. So uh, we ask that you will rise for the reading of God's Word as we prepare our hearts and our minds to hear uh, from God's Word this morning through his servant, B.J., Hear the words spoken to us and preached to us this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It says these words, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spear, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Pastor James, thank you so much for that uh, introduction. Uh, I chuckled a little bit when you said special guest, right? Uh, hey, um, I just want to say while I'm up here and have the opportunity that uh, Couture and I, uh, our family, we are deeply uh, thankful to God for the opportunity to be here and to be a part of this church. Uh, so we love you uh, so much, and uh, we're thankful for you. Um, as Pastor James mentioned, we are capping off the book of Ephesians. And so uh, before we dive into it, uh, please uh, allow me to say a quick prayer, and then um, let's get it. Heavenly Father, we need you to be near to us. Lord, we ask that you reveal your word to us this morning. The enemy is right now trying to disrupt 
and distract us from what you have for us. God, we ask that you fight on our behalf. Lord, keep us from temptation for your name's sake. Amen. Well, um, I'd like to I'll let you all in on my college basketball experience, okay? Um, I had the opportunity to play uh, for three different colleges where I observed what separated good teams from great teams. And for me, one of the factors uh, was and is the pregame speech, all right? Uh, on the better teams that I played on, the pregame speech was taken just as seriously as practice. Before every game, the speech given to us by our coach consisted of something called a scouting report. So a scouting report is what the teams use to highlight the opposing team's strengths and weaknesses. By having an accurate scouting report, you know what to expect from the opposing team. It can give you an edge, but it can also be the determining factor of whether you win or lose. For example, if the scouting report says uh, that number 33 is the team's leading scorer, then, to increase our chances of winning, we should identify who number 33 is and keep pressure on him or keep the ball out of his hands, right? But the best scouting reports go even deeper and are very, very detailed. For example, the scouting report may say number 33 is right-handed and scores 75% of his score baskets with his right hand. Again, with this information, to increase our chances of winning, we must force number 33, away from where he's most comfortable, which is his right hand, and, uh, and to his left. Well, some of the best scouting reports come from coaches who are former players. Because of their experience, they have an insight on the game that someone who has never played may not have. And you see this at the highest levels of competitive sport, professional, and collegiate, right? The pregame scouting report is vital. There's even an in-game scouting report, right, where at halftime, coaches would pass out current stat sheets uh, just so we could look, observe, and make proper adjustments. So we see, and from my experience, the scouting report is key when it comes to competitive team sports. Well, towards the end of Paul's letter, he is giving the Church of Ephesus the scouting report. As a coach prepares and leads his team into a basketball game, Paul is in a similar way, except it's not a mere basketball game. In Ephesians 6, Paul is referencing war, a battle with a terrible foe who wants your life, who wants my life, who wants our very souls, right? an enemy who wants God's position, an enemy who desires God's glory for himself. Paul is referencing war, and rather than speaking as a coach does, Paul states the strategy like a war general preparing his troops for battle. Well, here's the spoiler alert. Glory be to God, the battle is already won. Because of the work done by Jesus the Christ through his death on the cross, and his resurrection. God is the victor, and all that are his stand with him in victory. But Satan is, right now, actively attempting to destroy us. As we look at chapter 6, 
verses 10 through 20. My intent is to expound on Paul's final words to the church of Ephesus and share what they should mean to us. There's lots here packed in verses, uh, in these 10 verses. So by all means, please dive into them in your own personal time and with your community groups. But this morning, I want to read and expound on these verses in light of what seems to be uh, a recurring theme throughout the book of Ephesians, which is reconciliation and unity. When you read Paul's letter and see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And in Ephesians 2.16, Paul says he did this so that he might reconcile both God to one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And Ephesians 4.3, he says, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I believe it's wise for us to consider this theme of reconciliation and unity as it is ringing throughout Paul's letter. Leading up to verses, uh, to verse 6, to verse 10 in the chapter 6, Paul has just told the church of Ephesus the great truth of concerning their salvation. The great truth, sorry, these great truths concerning their salvation and how to live it out in relation to one another. There's great emphasis on God's grace and his power and might. It's a hopeful letter, confirming, challenging, down to earth, real. Then things get even more real when Paul gives the scouting report or the battle strategy. He tells the church of Ephesus what they must do, who they are up against, and how to stand. Well, let's read verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Paul begins this battle speech by reminding the church in Ephesus where their strength lies. Be strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength. Out of the gates, Paul gives them assurance with his words. This phrase alone challenges them to look outside of themselves for strength. It's assurance because it wouldn't be the first time God's vast strength was put on display in their lives. They can recall where Paul's words in chapter 1 where the Lord saved them according to his great power, or in chapter 2 when they were dead in their sins and he made them alive. Who else can do the impossible but the all-powerful God? especially when it is according to his great will and plan to reconcile and unite. In verse 11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. We will discuss more in regards to the full armor of God, but quickly, I'd like to point out that whether Paul is talking literally like God's actual battle-worn armor or speaking figuratively, just using armor as an illustration to describe truth and righteousness like we will see in upcoming verses, whether he is talking literally or figuratively, who can do either one? Who can physically put on the armor of God who holds the oceans in the palm of his hands? This grand God who weighs the mountains on a balance, the God who says the whole earth is his footstool, it is indeed an understatement to say that our God is a big God. And sure, these biblical descriptions are meant to be taken literal, and that's obvious because God is even greater than described. 
He's indescribable. Who is able to do what Paul is saying to do? Put on the full armor of God. What about God's righteousness and truth? This is how the psalmist describes God in the 119th Psalm. In verse 160, he says, The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. Who else but God fits this description? Not me. Not you. Not alone. Only those who are strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. And this is only possible through the strength, power, and might of God the Father, through his Son on the cross by the Spirit. God's strength surpasses all other strengths. There is no one and nothing that provides for and protects his children like our all-powerful, righteous, true, and good Father. The church in Ephesus is aware of this strength, has experienced God's power, and is being told to trust in God's might. So far, Paul has said to be strengthened by the Lord and to put on the full armor of God. And then Paul continues on with this scouting report or battle strategy and tells them what they are up against. In verse 11 and 12, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Paul gives an extensive detailed description of the enemy as to say to the church of Ephesus, the devil, is, the devil and his schemes should be acknowledged and be taken seriously. Well, here Paul points out that the enemy is the devil, then makes a clear distinction between the enemy and what seems to be the enemy. When he says in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. Flesh and blood refers to humans, the physical. While rulers and authorities and cosmic powers refer to evil forces, which are spiritual. This struggle, this combat, this wrestling is not to be fought with fists and weapons or lawyers and lawsuits. This is spiritual warfare. The devil is the primary enemy. Yeah, your coworkers may talk behind your back and slander you, because, you're, because of your faith, but they are not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is the evil one. That's the devil's name in 1 John 5. It also goes for the false prophet who preaches the prosperity gospel while simultaneously tearing families apart. They are not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is the father of lies. It's the devil's name in John chapter 8. Or the Taliban in Afghanistan who are treating women inhumanely as well as persecuting and killing converted Christians. They are not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is the adversary. 
or the, unfaith- or the unfaithful spouse. They are not the primary enemy. The rebellious teen is not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is the tempter. It's the devil's name in Matthew chapter 4. The ones protesting against, uh, the ones protesting for abortion rights are not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is the murderer. It's the devil's name in John chapter 8. The person who may have verbally or physically abused you or a loved one, they are not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is the destroyer. It's the devil's name in Revelation chapter 9. These people, flesh and blood, are not the primary enemy because they are redeemable. And as long as they are flesh and blood living, there is hope for them. They can be reconciled with God and unified with us. No one is too far off. Do you need proof? Look at me. You need further proof? Look at yourself. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were all children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, has rescued us. And God became flesh and blood to redeem flesh and blood. And to reject this is to reject the incarnation of God. And those who reject the incarnation of God are, in essence, rejecting their own redemption. For clarity, when saying that these people that have and are committing evil deeds are not the primary enemy, I'm not insisting that Paul is shifting fault away from these people. Everyone will be judged for their actions by a holy, just God. I'm only saying that despite the darkness that they walk in, there is potential for light in the end. They can be forgiven through true repentance and belief on the Son, Jesus Christ. There's still hope. While for the primary enemy, the devil, there is no hope. Here's an excerpt from J.R. Packer's book, Concise Theology. He says about Satan, Satan should be taken seriously, for malice and cunning make him fearsome, yet not so seriously as to provoke object terror of him. For he is a beaten enemy. Satan is stronger than we are, but Christ has triumphed over Satan. And Christians will triumph over him too if they resist him with the resources that Christ supplies. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 Acknowledging Satan's reality, taking his opposition seriously, noting his strategy, and reckoning on always being at war with him, This is not a lapse into a dualistic concept of two gods, one good, one evil, fighting it out. Satan is a creature, superhuman, but not divine. He has much knowledge and power, but he is neither omniscient nor omnipotent. He can move around in ways that humans cannot, but he is not omniscient. And he is already defeated rebel. Having no more power than God allows him, and being destined for the lake of fire. The primary enemy, Satan, is homeless, uh, is hopelessly doomed. 
that flesh and blood is redeemable. And this is the perspective that Paul calls the church of Ephesus to have. Now, I'll be the first to say, it's a lot easier said than done, right? If somebody cuts me off in traffic, I'm hot. You know, if, when I see you, it's up for you, you know? Like. So don't take it from me. But we can take it from Paul. The church, of Ephes- the church of Ephesus knows that Paul is speaking from experience. He's been there. They heard about the sufferings and persecutions that Paul has faced in his ministry prior to writing this letter. They're aware of his, his life being threatened in Damascus and his life being threatened again in Jerusalem, him being persecuted and run out of Antioch, uh, Antioch and facing possible stoning in Iconium. Stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Opposed and made the center of controversy. Him experienced the loss of a close friend and co-worker in Barnabas. Him being, him being beaten with rods and imprisoned in Philippi and then cast out of Philippi. His life was threatened in Thessalonica. Forced, he was forced out of Berea, mocked in Athens. Taken before judgment, taken before the judgment seat in Corinth. He was opposed by the silversmiths in Ephesus. He was plotted against by the Jews in Greece, apprehended by the mob in Jerusalem, arrested and detained by the Romans. Assassination plots were against him. He had a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, a shipwreck on the island of Malta, suffered a snake bite. And then imprisoned in Rome for the first time, where he is sitting in prison, writing this letter to the church of Ephesus. And the Roman prison guards are standing outside of his prison cell as he writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The church of Ephesus can accept these words from Paul because Paul took these words from Jesus. As Christ is nailed to the cross and he's being scoffed and mocked by soldiers, he says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. It takes extraordinary strength to recognize who the primary enemy is in the midst of warfare. And this extraordinary strength displayed by God the Son is given to us by God the Father. And Paul is a living example for the church of Ephesus. Paul, the the spirit-led apostle, is the most qualified to deliver this scouting report to them. Paul has said to be strengthened by the Lord and to put on the full armor of God. He has told them that they are up against the devil, his schemes, and evil spiritual forces. And now he will let them know what to do. Let's read verses 13 and 17 through 17. Paul says, For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and feet sandal, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul is saying that because the battle is a spiritual battle, they need spiritual armor. And the strategy in this battle isn't primarily to fight, but to stand. To stand in faith that this battle has been already won. And in order to resist the devil and withstand his evil attacks, they must be suited up in the only armor that can sustain them, God's full armor. So Paul then gives in detail each individual piece of armor and pairs up the weaponry with godly characteristics. And it seems like Paul's analogies are inspired by the very words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah and David the psalmist pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. In Isaiah 11, verse 5, the belt of truth in Ephesians 6 is alluded to. I say alluded to because it is not a direct quote, but in this context, righteousness and truth can be used interchangeably. Isaiah 11.5 says, righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Again, this is a prophecy from Isaiah describing Jesus and his reign as king. Isaiah speaks also of God putting on righteousness as body armor, similar to the breastplate that Paul speaks of in verse 14. Isaiah 59, 17 reads, He put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head, which we'll uh, touch on later. In Isaiah 52, 7, God is making a proclamation through Isaiah to his people in the midst of hardships and oppression. He says this, he says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims, uh, proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here God is telling his people through Isaiah, here in the midst of spiritual warfare, there is good news. I am your God and I reign supreme. Go tell it on the mountain. We have the victory. The context is similar to Paul's order to the church of Ephesus. Paul is telling them, this is spiritual warfare. Strap on those sandals. Tie up those laces to be prepared to share the great news of salvation and the victory for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Up to this point, Paul's description of the armor of God is heavily influenced by the prophet Isaiah. But then he switches it up on us and takes a page from David's book to highlight the shield of faith from verse 16. The psalm says here, For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. So a quick breakdown of this verse is that the Lord is the shield, so to, so to make the connection, the Lord becomes our shield when our faith is in him. Essentially, Paul is telling the church of Ephesus that their faith in God is what protects them from the devil and his schemes, which are like blazing arrows coming from every which way perpetually. In this fallen world, there really is a constant chaos to the point to where on this planet, 
24-7, every human being is madly searching for protection and relief. Well, that relief is only found in belief, belief in the Son, faith in God. Paul circles right back to Isaiah to support the final two articles of God's armor in verse 17. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which Paul adds, is the word of God. Psalms 59, 17 says this, He, God, has put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. Here Paul is saying, put on the helmet of salvation as Jesus has put on the helmet of salvation. He has put it on to identify that he is the one who has saved his people. His people, And you are to put it on to identify that you are the one who has been saved. If the enemy can take our helmet of salvation, he would have a direct kill shot to our souls. But the enemy cannot take what God has placed on us. And last but definitely not least, Paul addresses the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God that has rescued us from the clutches of the enemy. Look at Isaiah 11, 3 and 4. He says, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge, but what he sees with his eyes, he will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with the scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Isaiah prophesies that Jesus, the Son of God, will reign in power, administering justice upon the wicked with the sword, which is the word of his mouth, the word of God. And it is by the word of God that his people stand with the sword of the Spirit in hand. Now, the significance to Paul's use of the Old Testament to describe the armor of God given to us is that it proves the armor of God is not just an armor of godly characteristics, but it is the very armor of God that Jesus, the mighty warrior king, has put on himself in order to defeat sin and death and fight for those who place their faith in him. God has not left us to our own devices to fend off the spiritual forces. His name is Emmanuel. God is with us. And he has combated with the evil one. And he has triumphed victoriously over Satan. And has promised that those who have his armor, those who have him, they will stand in the midst of spiritual warfare. They will endure the attacks of the enemy and will reign with him. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. If you are here this morning and you feel lost or abandoned or an overwhelming sense of hopelessness, these are attacks and lies from the enemy, the father of lies. And I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus, who is truth. He was rejected so that you may be accepted. In that college basketball locker room, 
my coach would end his pregame speech by saying something along the lines of this. Uh, we, as your coaches, have done our part. <laughs> we have done our best to prepare you for this moment. We have given you the scouting report along with the game plan, and now it's up to you. Go and execute. The Apostle Paul has told the church of Ephesus that their strength is found in the Lord. Therefore, put on the full armor of God to stand against the devil and his schemes. He tells them the primary enemy is an evil spiritual force. Therefore, be grounded in the truth of God's word and be truthful with others. Also, to hold fast to the gift of justifying righteousness and practice justice towards others. He states to be ready for battle by embracing the gospel and proclaiming the good news in the midst of the hardships and tribulations. He tells them they must keep the faith amongst the demonic attacks. He encourages them to cling to the salvation that is already accomplished for believers in Christ. And he reminds them to use the word of God as defense against the enemy. Paul the Apostle, being led by the Spirit, gives us the blueprint. And now for God's glory and for our good, we must execute the game plan. And the way to is laid out for us in verses 18 through 20. Let's read verse 18. Paul says, Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. First and foremost, we must be a church that prays. Prayer is the Christian's most powerful resource. And according to Paul's words, it is good to exercise discipline at all times with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints being led by the Spirit. Prayer is how we as Christians express our allegiance to God. It's how we express our allegiance to one another. When we pray for one another, it is a direct defense and attack to the enemy who wants to disrupt our unity. Satan is fierce in his efforts to destroy God's plan of reconciliation and unity. Because by it, God's power and might is on great display. Because Satan is unceasing in his attempts to destroy our fellowship with God and one another, we must remain alert and be persistent in prayer. And God, who is eager to build and fill his church with all ethnicities and all generations and all cultures, will hear and answer our prayers according to his good and perfect will. Maintaining a consistent prayer life can be challenging for many reasons. Take it from me. And if you find yourself struggling to get in the rhythm of prayer, here are a few practical ways to gain some momentum. Uh, build prayer into the rhythm of your life. Right? Set an alarm. Put, uh, put it in your daily planner. Pull away from distractions, whether it's your phone, computer, or TV. Find a quiet place to pray. Pray scripture. Right? Open the Bible and read. And as you are reading the words of God, read them back to God. The book of Psalms is a great place to start. 
Journal your prayers. As you pray, write down your request made to God. Then go back through and see the many ways that the Lord has answered them. And pray for and with others. Here at Sojourn Carlisle, we have a members directory available for each member to have and take. Commit to praying for two members or families a day. Or take one day a week and pray for 10 families. Or whatever, whatever pace is comfortable for you. You can also get a prayer buddy. Right, someone who you can meet with once a week and spend a lunch break praying together. Or you can FaceTime someone every other day and spend five minutes praying. And if you're here this morning and you're having trouble finding a prayer buddy, you can ask me. Uh, me and my wife would be happy to try to make it work. But not everybody at once. What must we do to stand against the evil one? We must pray. And we must ask to be prayed for. Verses 19 and 20, Paul says this. He says, pray also for me, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about, it, speak about it as I should. Paul leads by example by asking to be prayed for. He is vulnerable and open about his current hardships and wrestling with the enemy. And he asks for prayer knowing and expecting God's people to help carry his burden and cry out to the Father on his behalf. We as a people reconciled to the Father and unified together should ask for relief and expect to find comfort in God through one another. God has brought us together into a community with one another to share with one another, to empathize with one another, to be vulnerable, to celebrate, to be celebrated, to confess sin without being shamed, but rather to be healed. God uses his people to care for his people. And we must be eager to embrace this gift that we collectively have because the enemy desires to create a wedge between us. Perhaps he has an evil scheme to keep God's people from being vulnerable knowing that if we aren't talking to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are more than likely not talking to anyone else. Perhaps Satan knows that if we aren't embracing and encouraging one another with the gospel of peace, then we are more than likely not sharing the gospel of peace with our neighbor. Soldier in church, by praying with and for one another, we are limiting the opportunities for Satan to dismember us. In 2023, and Lord willing, the many more years to come, let's be the unified church that God has reconciled to himself. Let us put on the armor of God 
so that we may resist in the evil day. And let it be said of us, by God's grace, people have come to a saving faith in God by observing the way that we love one another. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your word. God, we praise you for the security that we have in you, that the battle and the victory is already won. But Lord, we ask that you equip us with your armor so that we can be bold and proclaim the gospel of salvation amongst the enemy's fire. God, this morning, you are with us and you are near because you are faithful. We love you and praise you in your son's name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless. Thank you.